it wasn't lost on me the peculiar timing of coming to a passage like this that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple during a week, or a week and a half, I suppose, of these conflicts now occurring in the Middle East with Hamas and Israel, as uh, Catherine just got done praying. And it's obviously a, a, horrible, a horrible thing and um, something that we can be praying for. But I can also imagine that as you come to a, past like, a passage like this, when things in society happen, and especially in the Middle East, people oftentimes start to wonder, could this be fulfillment of prophecy? Uh, maybe you're wondering, you know, is this uh, conflict between Hamas and Israel part of God's timeline uh, of fulfillment of prophecy concerning the end? Uh, well, let me tell you, this, that conflict in the Middle East right now is actually mentioned in this passage, believe it or not. But it may not be in the way that you might initially think. Before we get to answer that question, let's begin by looking at the setting of our passage today. Looking in verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, you may remember Jesus has just gotten done clashing with the religious leaders in the temple. And as they leave the temple here, one of his disciples comments on its grandeur. Now, Josephus, uh, who is an ancient Jewish historian, where we get a lot of information about this time and even this passage in particular, we get a lot of information from him. Josephus says that the temple was built of hard white stones, each of it, each of which, get this, were about 35 feet long, he says, 11 feet high, and seven feet, 17 feet long. The temple was built on a huge platform over 900 feet wide and 1,600 feet long, encompassing a total of about 35 acres. It rose 150 feet at its highest point. Its walls were covered in gold plates. The temple was simply one of the most amazing wonders of the ancient world. You can imagine that as pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem, as they approached the city from a distance, the temple would dominate the skyline. Uh, some would say that the temple complex was a whole sixth of the entire city. And as they approached, it would appear as a mountain of white marble glistening with the sun's brightness reflecting off of its gold. And so, in one sense, you can't blame the disciples for gawking at the temple. It was marvelous. But it also shows that the disciples still don't get it. Jesus has repeatedly condemned the religious system of the temple even anticipating its demise. Jesus has cleansed the temple, condemning the religious practices happening inside it. And as he cursed the fig tree, so too the temple itself will be cursed. It will share that same fate, the city itself. As Jesus visits the temple, we see him clashing with and condemning its religious leaders. As the owner of the vineyard came and destroyed the tenants, when they rejected the owner's son, according to Jesus' parable, so too will God visit the temple 
and Jerusalem in judgment. And you can almost feel the irony at this point that Jesus' disciples here are mesmerized by the stones of the temple, and yet Jesus has already predicted that he is the true stone, same word, the rejected stone from Psalm 118, through which God is going to construct a new temple, he has told us. And so Jesus now makes things absolutely abundantly clear to them. Hey guys, the temple is going to be destroyed. Verse 2, and Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And we know from history, from those like Josephus and others, that this event eventually happened about 40 years later in AD 70 when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple just as Jesus predicted. Um, and we'll be referencing that a lot. So when I say AD 70, that's what I'm referring to throughout the rest of our sermon, that destruction of Jerusalem and its temple at the hands of Rome. Now, it may be hard for us to imagine the disciples' shock at hearing this, given our cultural distance from them. We haven't grown up in, in something like their religious environment where a temple would have been seen as absolutely essential, indispensable. For example, if we ever couldn't meet at this particular location, it wouldn't be the end of the world for us, right? We could always find somewhere else to meet. This has happened to us, right? COVID, the ceiling falling in, we have examples of this. You might even hear folks reminding us in, in that time that the church is not a building. The church continues to exist apart from our specific location. But imagine being in a situation, put yourself in these shoes, where our very existence as a church was tied to a particular building. This building is the one and only way that we can gather to worship God. We have no other way of meeting with God. For us to lose that building then would be devastating. And that's essentially the relationship that Israel had with the temple. As we look at the Old Testament story, beginning even with the garden, which is portrayed as a temple, and then as sin enters the world, the only way for a holy God to dwell amidst a sinful people is for him to carve out a space where by sacrifices he is able to dwell among them. And that happens first in the tabernacle and eventually it takes a more permanent form in the temple. But the temple then, the tabernacle and temple, were where one went to meet with God. And you're saying it's going to be destroyed, Jesus? And the eventual destruction of the temple, its meaning, its significance, is that it signals that God is clearly then doing something new. For him to destroy the temple signals he's doing something new. On the one hand, it signals the condemnation of the current religious system and its leaders. That much has been quite clear. Jesus has, has gone about saying that, as we've seen. But it also, as we've seen, signals the arrival of a new way by which sinners are to relate with God. The new temple that God is building, that is the very person of Jesus. And we even see this at the very end of the book, right? As we'll get to, when Jesus dies, what happens? The curtain in the temple is torn in two, potentially uh, uh, signifying judgment on the temple, but also very likely as the book opens with the, with the heavens being ripped open, and God declaring Jesus as his son. So the book closes with now the temple 
uh, curtain being ripped open. Same word in the Greek. And access to God is now achieved through a new way. Namely, the death of Christ. That the sacrifices and the, and the mediation, the atonement that the tabernacle and temple anticipated, that that's how we can actually have a relationship with God is actually through the sacrifice for our sin. That that is fulfilled in Jesus who is the priest who offers sacrifice, who is the sacrifice himself, the one who bears our sin, and is the temple himself, the place, the one, the person where we actually are reconciled and meet with God. But in light of such a shocking statement, I mean, Jesus has said some pretty shocking things throughout the book, but this, this may take the cake. Take the, cake. the disciples then asked Jesus, you've you got to explain this to us. Verse 3 and 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is a mountain just on the other side of the Kidron Valley facing the temple. It's a, you can see the temple from the Mount of Olives. As he sat then on the, on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Jesus, tell us when will these things, that is the things you just predicted, the destruction of the temple, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, the rest of this passage is incredibly thorny and highly debated. In fact, it, it, it seems to be pretty much the consensus that this chapter 13 is the most difficult passage in the entire book of Mark. Um, I was telling Dan, I wish I had like $5 for every time I read someone who said, this is the most difficult passage. Dan said, yeah, you'd be able to buy a whole new library with all the money. Um, over and over, people mention that. It's also one of the most debated passages in the entire Bible. And so we want to approach a passage like this with a sense of uh, tentativeness in our interpretation, that making our best judgment that it, it seems to be this way, but not being dogmatic, as well as a sense of humility in our interpretation. But this passage is also the longest discourse of Jesus, the longest time we get, the, 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 most, the most lengthy time of just Jesus speaking that we get in the entire Gospel of Mark. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives. Its parallel passages in the other Gospels would be Matthew 24 and 25, as well as Luke 21. And so obviously Mark saw this as quite important for his original audience to spend so much time including this in his work. The difficulty and debate, the central difficulty in this passage has to do with the fact that Jesus' description of the events of the temples and Jerusalem's destruction is, as you'll have noticed, placed side by side with mention of Jesus' coming, as if the two would occur immediately one after the other. Uh, the di disciples' question actually assumes that the destruction of the temple meant the end of the world. And this becomes clear if you look at Matthew's account, for instance. In Matthew's account of this passage, chapter 24, verse 3 there, the way Matthew renders their question is this. Tell us, Jesus, when, the, when will these things be, that is the destruction of the temple, and then their second question is, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of this age? So Matthew makes it quite clear that they're viewing the destruction of the temple as having to do with Jesus' return and the end of the age. Now, why would they make that assumption? Well, you might think of it this way. If, if, I was, if we were standing in Washington, D.C., before the White House, and, and, and there's the, all these monuments, and, and, all, and you can see all these like, historic buildings, and I was to say to you that in uh, a generation's time, that 
White House will be burnt and, and, and rubble, and this whole place will be like an apoc a post-apocalyptic zone. Like, it will just be absolutely destroyed. You would likely assume, without me even telling you, that that probably would involve the demise of the United States. That for its capital, capital be, to be so decimated would likely just, you would probably just assume, well, then the uh, U.S. was attacked, the country would be no more. And so, too, that seems to be sort of their thinking, that for, the, for something as central in, in, in the universe, the temple, and God's, that God's holy city, Jerusalem, to be destroyed, it must signal the very end of history. So, too, we see this linking, for instance, in Mark 13, 24, verse 24, where Jesus says, but in those days, after that tribulation, or as Matthew even makes it stronger, Matthew in 24, 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So those days, the temple destruction and the coming of Christ are placed right next to each other. But of course, we know that Jesus did not physically return after the events of A.D. 70. So, one position is what we might call the futurist position. And I, I just mentioned, there's plenty of views, there's, there's loads of views, but I just mentioned this one because it's somewhat prominent, and I think it's worth you knowing uh, about how I think we might think about this view. This view uh, takes the position that Jesus here is describing events that, at least from our vantage point, are still in the future. Jesus is describing future events even from our vantage point today. Obviously, everyone agrees Jesus is talking about future events from their vantage point, but even from our vantage point, what Jesus is describing is in the future. According to this view, this passage tells of a future time of tribulation, oftentimes like a seven-year tribulation is how it's portrayed, that will involve an attack on Israel and a future rebuilt temple immediately after which Christ will return. This is common in what's called dispensationalism, if you're familiar with that term. However, this interpretation suffers from the following points. It requires, first of all, ignoring the very context of the passage, which deals with the destruction of the temple in their own day. In verse 4, they ask about these things. When will these things occur? Which refers back to the destruction of the temple that Jesus just mentioned. This view has to basically say Jesus bypasses answering their question and talks about something entirely else. I also think it's quite clear, as we'll see, that Jesus is, in fact, describing the events that took place in AD 70. And then lastly, this view uh, has a lot of trouble explaining what Jesus means by this generation. In verse 30, Jesus says, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But of course, that generation did pass away if the events here are still out in the future. Rather, I, along with I think most interpreters historically, think that Jesus has both the events of AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and his second coming in view here. Jesus, I think the solution to understanding this is that Jesus is engaging in what is sometimes called prophetic telescoping which is a common feature of prophetic literature in general. Prophetic telescoping is when events that are actually quite distant from one another in time, such as those in the near future, the immediately near future, and those in the more distant future, are nonetheless placed right alongside each other in a prophet's address, as if they are occurring as part of one in the same event. 
And so here, Jesus puts the events of AD 70 right up against the second coming. This idea of telescoping is comparable, and some have illustrated it, to as if one was to look at a mountain range from a distance. Now, mountain peaks, which are actually miles apart, which you'd clearly see if you were able to get up close to the mountains, from a distance, what? They appear right next to each other. And so let me give you then a summary of just, we kind of got to get this out of the way before we can actually deal with applying the passage, just so we're all on the same page. But let me just give you a summary of then of how I understand this passage. And you might take notes so that you don't get lost um, on this. But what I understand is that verses 5 to verses, verse 5 to verses 13 is describing, at least in its initial referent, is describing the events and the time leading up to AD 70. The time of the early church leading up to AD 70. This would be like the time of the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Verses 14 to 23 then describes the events of AD 70 itself. Now let's let's actually read, we will read all this passage, but let's just read this section here. uh, 13, 14 to 20. Jesus says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. Now, this language of abomination of desolation comes from Daniel, the prophet Daniel. And it originally, almost all scholars are agreed that it originally referred to uh, Antiochus Epiphanes um, during the Old Testament period, desecrating the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, which of course would have been a horrendous thing uh, against God's law and to the Jewish people. But here, Jesus is saying that that abomination of desolation is going to have yet another fulfillment at the time when Rome comes and destroys the temple. And Luke's account makes this explicitly clear. In Luke 21.20, he interprets this language of abomination of desolation for his readers this way. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies know then that its desolation has come near. So he, he just makes it explicit. I'm talking about, Jesus is talking about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Let's continue. So when, when you see that, Jesus says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of there. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Why? Because it's going to be much more difficult to flee if you're nursing or if you're pregnant. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And this idea that Jesus instructs them to flee, this is exactly what the Christians did at that time. We have a record from Eusebius um, uh, that the Christians did actually flee to a, uh, a city in the Transjordan region and were spared from this devastation. You may be wondering, Jesus says, in those days there's going to be such tribulation that's unparalleled, never has been and never will be. And you may be saying, is that really, does that really describe what happened in AD 70? Well, first of all, this is, on the one hand, this is sort of how the prophets talk. They often talk in these very grand, sort of unparalleled like ways. So it doesn't necessarily even have to be literal. But even if we were to take it literal, 
it very well could be true. Um, the accounts we have of the siege on Jerusalem were absolutely horrendous. You might think, well, how does this surpass like that of the Holocaust where you know, it was, I think some people say, six million Jews were killed. But that was over the stretch of many years. Obviously horrible, but over the stretch of many years, this siege took between four and five months, and a million Jews were killed just within that time. So the, 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 the concentration of devastation it, it is, in many ways, unparalleled. So we see then 5 through 13, the events leading up to 80, 70, 14 to 23, events of 80 itself, 8070 itself, and then 24 and 27 would be the physical return of Christ. In those days, you will see the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I think that this view makes the most sense, then, of verses 28 and 31, which often pose difficulty to people. Here, I think in verses 28 and 31 to 31, I think Jesus is instructing his disciples to watch for the signs leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. In verses 32 to 37, you'll notice, the paragraph that follows, Jesus is actually going to tell us that no one knows the time of his return, of his coming. We can't predict it. And yet here, Jesus is describing something that can be anticipated. In fact, he uses the illustration of the fig tree to tell his disciples to watch for the signs of its arrival. Verse 28, for from the fig tree you learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. This only makes sense, then, if Jesus here is describing something other than his physical return, namely the destruction of the temple, something that actually can be predicted with the sign that he gave when you see the abomination of desolation. He actually did give a sign for that, something for them to look out so that they could flee. This also makes sense of verse 30, where he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words, heaven and earth, sorry, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The events of AD 70 did in fact happen roughly 40 years after Jesus predicted them. In, in the biblical world, a generation was seen as 40 years. If you think of the wilderness wanderings where because the first generation uh, refused to enter the land, God causes them to wander in the wilderness for what? 40 years, a full generation until the next generation arose. And so if Jesus here is talking about the, specifically the destruction of Jerusalem, then that actually did happen within a generation, just as he says. And finally, notice Jesus' language. In verse 4, the disciples ask Jesus about these things, he says. Uh, or they say, if you look, they say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And now Jesus goes, and, and in verse 29 and 30, he utilizes that same language to signal, I think, that that is exactly what he's referring to here. He says in verse 29, um, sorry, he says, so also when you see these things taking place, and I think there he's alluding back to the disciples' language of these things referring to the temple's destruction. Or in verse 30, this generation will not pass away until these things 
take place, referring again to the temple's destruction. Additionally, at the end of verse 29, when, it, when he says that you know that he is near at the very gates, um, as some translations have, the he there could actually be translated it. Um, not a person, but it, as in the destruction of Jerusalem is near. And so I think that's the correct translation. Now, that said, although the tribulation in view here is specifically the events of AD 70, the Bible also speaks of the tribulation as spanning the entire church age. We see this in the book of Revelation where John talks about himself as a partaker in the tribulation. And as he addresses the churches, he talks about them going through the tribulation. We see in chapter 7, the martyrs coming out of the tribulation. The martyrs are the whole church age. We also see that the New Testament says that we are in the last days since the ascension of Christ. And so the entirety of the church age is then described as this time period of the tribulation. And so even though much of this passage, as we'll see, first addresses Jesus's immediate disciples here, and the specific tribulation leading up to and climaxing in the event of AD 70, the principles of this time period, I believe, apply to us as well, that we are still living in this general time frame. And so we too can learn from Jesus's instruction here. Now, one of the questions though is why do the prophets telescope events like this, depicting them together? On the one hand, it's likely because the prophets are more concerned with instructing us in how to live than providing us a detailed roadmap of the future where they need to make everything crystal clear like that. But second, it's also because more distant events, or more, sorry, it's also because more near events in the future often foreshadow more distant events in the future such that to group the events together is to show that they are cast in essentially the same mold, the near event foreshadowing the future event. And so here, it's quite possible that the events of AD 70, God's judgment upon Israel, actually prefigure the final judgment of all humanity at the end of history when Christ returns, just as he talks about his return here. It may explain then why Jesus puts these events next to each other if the former foreshadows the latter, two judgments being put side by side here. In either case, though, throughout Scripture, God's past acts of judgment in history are held up to us to teach us how God will ultimately respond to sin at the end of history. The idea is this, that is, if this is how God has responded to sin in the past, on a micro scale, then how do you think he will ultimately respond to sin on a macro scale? So 2 Peter 2, for instance, says that if God did not spare the ancient world of Noah's day, and, and if he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, so then he has made them an example of what, he is, what is going to happen to the ungodly. For centuries, God showed incredible long-suffering toward Israel, sending them prophet after prophet, but now here, after rejecting his very son, God finally pours out his wrath, destroying Jerusalem and the temple. And if this is how God responded to Israel's rejection of his son, how do you think he will deal with those at the end of history who reject his son? And Jesus accurately predicted all of this. And in Mark 13, 30 to 31, we saw that Jesus says, truly, 
This generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. My word is certain, in other words. And it happened just as Jesus predicted. It's remarkable the level of detail Jesus gives. If Jesus' prediction of the judgment of Jerusalem, in other words, proved true, then his promise to return and to judge is also certain. And so in that way, this passage serves as a warning of judgment to all those who have yet put their faith in Christ and look to him for salvation, who see him as the temple, who see him as the place that we can be reconciled with God. And so if you're here today and you have not yet done that, hear this passage as a warning to yourself, a call to to, to cast yourself on Christ. Now, prophecy is one of those things that excites people's interest like nothing else, it seems. Uh, And people tend to treat it like it exists in order to answer our questions about the future. For us to be able to chart out future events in great detail. But the purpose of prophecy is actually not to satisfy our curiosity about the future or serve as fodder for our speculation, which means that we shouldn't approach prophecy assuming that it even contains answers to all of our questions about the future as if that's what it's even intending to do, intending to provide a clear roadmap of things. Rather, the purpose of prophecy throughout scripture is that we might live according to accordingly, according to the message given. Its focus is incredibly practical, in other words. And we see this here even in this passage, where Jesus, by my count, gives a total of 19 commands. This whole section is filled with 19 different commands from Jesus. The focus is practical, how we are to live in the interim between Christ's first and second coming. Now today's sermon, I know where is a long introduction, but this is my second introduction. Um, today's sermon is, is a sermon for sleepy people. You might say, finally, a sermon for sleepy people. That's a sermon for me. And then maybe you thought, well, why didn't you have some pillows laying out and some nice blankets as you walked in today? That's not what I mean. I don't mean this is a time to take a nap. Um, but as you'll see, the overwhelming uh, the, the repetition and focus of this passage is this, eye, is this imagery of having our eyes open and being awake. The, the, this word, the word see or look out, be observant, notice, see, it structures this passage. In verse 5, Jesus opens his discourse saying, see that no one leads you astray. He continues in verse 9, Be on your guard, which is literally see. It's the same word, even though they translate it differently. See, look out, in other words. At the end of that section, in verse 23, be on guard. Again, look out, see. And then in the final paragraph, verse 33, be on guard, see. And then four times here in this final paragraph, Jesus calls his disciples to stay awake. See, keep your eyes open. Don't be drowsy. Don't fall asleep. 33, be on guard, look out, and keep awake. At the end of verse 34, like a master going on a journey, he commands his servants to what? Stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake, lest you are found asleep. Verse 36. So again, verse 37, stay awake. So the image here is, uh, is of, of this sort of drowsy, drooping eyes, falling asleep, in contrast to the call of being awake, 
or what we might think of as living with wide eyes, vigilant, alert. And this language is used throughout the Gospel of Mark, right? We've seen that Mark uses this language of, of, of our sensory perception to, to depict our spiritual insight, we might say. That scene has a significant role in Mark, illustrating our need for spiritual sight. As Mark 8.18 says, having eyes do you not see? And we'll eventually see in the Garden of Gethsemane that the same word for staying awake, watchfulness, is exactly what the disciples fail to do. They fail to, to, to stay awake. They literally fall asleep in the garden. It's, it's sort, sort of a picture of the drowsy believer as we have in this passage. Now, we might ask ourselves, what are signs of being a sleepy Christian? What are signs that we are sleepy or that our eyes are droopy? I wrote down 86 ideas, but I only, no, I didn't. I have a list, though. Um, first of all, what's a sign that we are sleepy? A weakened fight with sin. That you no longer fight with sin, that you've come to terms with it. Another sign is that you're not living with a fierce sense of mission-oriented, God-glorifying purpose in life. You're increasingly apathetic. You're easily alarmed. Your eyes are shut, in other words, to God's control over things. You're alarmed. Or you're easily anxious with your eyes shut to God's care for you. You're increasingly cynical. Your eyes are shut to hope in God's promises. You're easily distracted from a close watch over your heart and your lifestyle. You're not alert to falsehood, keeping a guard. Your guard is actually down. Or you're unprepared, totally taken off guard by the difficulties you have to face on account of following Christ. You rarely think about Christ's return and the impact that it should have on how you live now. That's the sort of condition that Jesus is addressing in this passage. It's incredibly practical, what it looks like to live wide awake. That's the message of this passage, is that we are to live wide-eyed, we might say, alert, vigilant, as we await the coming of Christ, as we live between the first and second coming of Christ. That's our call, is to live wide awake. And so Jesus, in this passage, we might boil it down to six instructions that we'll go through quickly here. Six instructions from our Lord Jesus on how we can go about living wide awake. And I want you to hear these instructions as if Jesus were standing among us here even today giving us these words. This is his word. It comes to us as if he himself spoke it to us physically present. And the first is this. He says, how do we, how do we live wide-eyed? First of all, he says, don't be led astray by falsehood. We start in verses, verse 5 and following. Remember, by verses 5 to 13, I take to be the events leading up to AD 70. But beginning in verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Now, if you go to the end of this section, verse 21 to through 23, Jesus raises the same topic. He creates something of a bookends to these sections. 
Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to be led astray, if possible, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard, look, be wide-eyed. I have told you all things beforehand. And this did, in fact, happen during the time leading up to AD 70. We know from Josephus and even from the book of Acts that during this time of turmoil, it became fertile ground for a lot of messianic fervor, and various figures arose as would-be revolutionaries. And isn't this often the case, that in desperate times, in times of turmoil and calamity, we're oftentimes more susceptible to such voices that would claim to be saviors, that would claim to rescue us. When we look at the rest of the New Testament, too, for example, the epistle of 1 John portrays this age as a time of the Antichrist, of those who oppose the true Christ. Or we think of the book of Revelation with its portrayal of the second beast, the false prophet who opposes the reign of Christ, who spreads his propaganda. In almost every New Testament epistle, let's not fool ourselves about the danger of false teaching, because in almost every New Testament epistle, it seems that it's addressing some sort of false teaching in a church. Jesus instructs us, first of all, to be wide-eyed, is to be on guard against false teaching. Second, he tells us to be wide-eyed by not being mistaken by what are birth pangs. Read verses 7 and 8 with me. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These, though, are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Now, what do folks often do when they hear of calamity and war? I think these are signs that we're in the end times. But that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus says here, is it not? He says that these are not actually the first signs of the end. He says these are actually the signs that it's not the end. He says in verse 7, when these things are happening, it means that the end is not yet. And as Jesus says in verse 8, they are mere birth pangs. Now, Now, what are birth pangs? Well, they are the early labor pains that are leading up to the eventual birth of the child. And so, too, calamity and war, Jesus says, are part of the general agony of this age leading up to the return of Christ. And so, yes, the Hamas-Israel conflict is mentioned in this passage, but as part of the general birth pangs leading up to the end. In other words, Jesus would rather have us spend time keeping watch over ourselves, our hearts, our lives, than obsessively looking at the events around us, trying to detect signs of the end times. Spend less time looking for signs of the end times, trying to dissect what's going on in the world. Spend more time concerned with yourself, Jesus would say across this passage. Thirdly, we have wide eyes as we are not alarmed by turmoil. Don't be alarmed by turmoil, number three. If we go back to verse seven, Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, notice the command there, do not be alarmed. Why? As he says, this must take place. When we hear of wars and natural disasters, 
stock market crashes, economic recessions on the horizon, what's our typical response? We feel alarmed, we feel nervous, the world feels out of control. And maybe we even think to ourselves, is God actually in control? Jesus assures us, don't be alarmed. And that's a command, believer. Jesus tells you, you're not allowed to be alarmed as long as he's in charge. Why? Because these things must take place, Jesus says. It's all part of God's plan, in other words. Non-believers look at calamity and war and they think, well, God must not exist. If God existed, he wouldn't allow these things to happen. But believers, we see such things through eyes of faith as birth pangs that signal that the end is coming. Just as birth pangs show that a baby is on its way, so these birth pangs are signs of God directing history to its intended end. And so we have no need to be alarmed amidst these sort of things. They are all within God's control. Fourth, Jesus tells us to be prepared to endure persecution. We are wide-eyed by being prepared to endure persecution. Verses 9 through 13. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now you might say, hold on a minute, Kirk. How is this talking about before AD 70 if the gospel, we're still trying to spread it to people today? Did this actually happen? And I would say, yes, this actually did happen according uh, to how they would have understood the known world at that time. We see this even from the book of Acts where Jesus tells his disciples to proclaim the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And by the end of the book, Paul is in the ends of the earth in Rome. Or Paul in Colossians 1.6, he speaks about how the gospel has actually come to the whole world. Now, obviously, they're using world there to refer to their entire known world. So yes, I do think this happened in that time period. And this is exactly what we saw the apostles do in the book of Acts. Go, and they actually spoke before councils, like when, when Peter and John are arrested and they speak before the Sanhedrin, or when Paul is arrested and he speaks before rulers. Let's continue. Uh, I left off in verse 10. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Which is what Jesus said, that those who would come after him must bear their cross for his sake and for the gospels. But... The one who endures to the end will be saved. They will gain their life by losing it, he says. Now, there's obviously much here, as we saw, that is very specific to those first disciples, the persecutions that they went through. Nonetheless, as those who also live in the time of the tribulation, as 2 Timothy 3.12 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we might add that Mark 13 is assuming we will be persecuted, that this persecution is arising because we're bearing witness to Christ. It just assumes that that the time period that the church is in is a time of missionary activity, of sharing the gospel. And Jesus points out the need for perseverance. Why? Because persecution, hardship, 
resistance on account of our faith will tempt us to abandon that faith. As Jesus' parable of the soils uh, said in Mark 4, that the rocky ground represents those who, quote, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but only endure a while. Why? Because when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Jesus says, they immediately fall away. And so there's need to persevere, to be ready to endure hardship for the faith. As in the rest of the New Testament teaches us, perseverance is a sign of true saving faith. Those who are truly saved persevere. Colossians 1, to 23 says that Jesus has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death if, indeed, we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Hebrews 3.14 says that we have come to share in Christ Notice, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And as 1 John 2.19 says, it says, what about those who then leave the faith? Well, faith, leave the, the church community and abandon Christ. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so by God's grace, we are called to persevere. Fifth, Jesus tells us, don't be anxious. We also see that God's provision, or we also see in this passage, God's provision for his people. Over and over in this passage, we see God's provision for his people. So for instance, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 11, as we read, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, notice what he says. He says, do not be anxious. That's a command. That's one of his commands is for us to not be anxious. Why? Well, for them specifically, for these largely uneducated group of, of would-be apostles now, soon to be apostles, he will provide them their speech that they otherwise wouldn't have through the power of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, in verses 14 to following, the, the, the bit that goes over the actual events of AD 70, Jesus provides a sign of Jerusalem's impending destruction, partly so that his people would actually be able to watch for it and flee and escape devastation. It's a way of him caring for his people to say, watch for that. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee, get out of there. Or again, in verse 20, we saw that God actually cuts that time period short. Why? For the sake of his elect. So over and over across this passage, we see God's provision and his care and his concern for his people. And now again, there's much here that is unique to that initial generation. But nonetheless, God has not, not stopped providing care for his people. He hasn't stopped caring for his people. Christ has not left his church today to fend for itself any more than he did the apostolic church. Jesus gave us his word in Matthew 16 that he will build his church. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. And like them, he promises always to be with us. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And when we personally struggle to live wide awake, when we struggle to put these things into practice, we can ultimately rest in the gospel in which Christ promises to carry us home. He's providing for us. He's enabling us. He will take us to the end. Now, to be clear, this doesn't guarantee our comfort or our safety. As Jesus says here, 
some of them will actually be put to death. And if death, how much more might God allow us to experience even lesser distresses than that? Nonetheless, he tells us, do not be anxious because he will provide exactly what we need. He, he cares for us and, he, and we can know then that nothing can happen to us apart from his will. And lastly, number six, Jesus tells us to be expectant. We see the return of Christ in verses 24 to 27. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will shake. This is typical prophetic sort of cosmic uh, disarray happening here. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, alluding to Daniel 7, with great power and glory. And then he shall send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And Jesus tells us in verse 32 that concerning that day, I think he's referring to his return there, he shifts now, he says, but that day, as opposed to AD 70, or that hour, no one knows not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Look out then, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. We do not know when Christ will return, and so instead we are to live always ready. Now, being ready for Christ's return doesn't mean that we're constantly looking up at the clouds, trying to not be taken by surprise if he should return at a given moment. No, Jesus is referring to a readiness of our lives, that we live our lives in such a way that is prepared, ready, expectant to give an account should Christ return, and he will. We live our lives now in view of his future return, in other words. Jonathan Edwards, when he was young, put together a list of resolutions, and one of those I might tweak to say this way, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when Christ returns. To live now, I am resolved, to live as I wish I had done when Christ returns. And so it's worth taking an inventory of our lives, that if, if I examine all aspects of my life, how I conduct myself, my priorities, the way I spend my time and my money, my goals, Ask, ask yourself, do these things make sense in light of the reality of Christ coming again? Does the way I live my life reflect a belief in Christ's return? Will Jesus find me awake or will he find me spiritually drowsy? As we come now 